This is Take a Leaf with Green Writers Press. I'm Heather McCabe, and this week we're taking a leaf out of Vermont author Katie Farber's book, Salamander Sky. Every spring in the eastern region of the United States, warmer nights with steady rain bring the migration of thousands of spotted salamanders to ponds and pools, often across busy roads. These crossings are magical and secretive. Most people don't even know they happen. Salamander Sky features a mother and daughter who go out on a rainy night to help the salamanders cross the road safely. This dramatic, full-color picture book introduces readers to the elusive spotted salamanders and the perilous nighttime journey they take each spring. Amphibians worldwide desperately need protection, and this book is a valuable tool for getting children engaged in conservation. So hi, Katie. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So just to start off with, could you share a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. So I'm a former sixth grade teacher. I taught for 17 years in central Vermont, and I've always been a writer um, as well. And now I work at the University of Vermont as a researcher and a teacher coach um, and also as a writer. So it's a pretty nice synergy of, of, of interest there. Wonderful. So you've written books in the past? Yes, I have two books about education um, and a middle grades novel, and then this is my first picture book. Wonderful. So today we're talking about Salamander Sky. And so to start off with, I'm wondering if you could share a kind of brief overview overview of the spotted salamander. Absolutely. They are a fascinating creature. They're this elusive um, seven inch to nine inch long salamander uh, that has a very wide range from Canada all the way down um, to Georgia. And they breed from March to April up here in the Northeast. Um, and they're not seen much at all normally. Um, they come out only at night and particularly for this breeding period, which is a very special time that you get to see this creature um, if you're lucky. That's amazing. And what are the kind <laughs> of conservation efforts that you're interested in and what are threats that they face? Yeah, so what happens is is they um, will travel often long distances to go back to the vernal pools and the ponds um, that they were born in themselves and then to mate and lay their eggs. And um, so during this journey, they often cross roads. And so they face high levels of mortality um, at night, particularly if it's during a rush hour, a busy, a busy road crossing site. And, um, and that's what you end up seeing a lot of times is you see the mortality. Um, and it's so concerning because we know amphibians are threatened um, worldwide and particularly because of climate change. Um, their seasons change. Actually, spotted salamanders are getting actually smaller physically. And so there's all sorts of challenges. And when you add the road mortality, um, you're really giving this, this species um, you know, a real problem. And so conservation for this species really looks like, um, you know, making sure that those vernal pools and ponds are protected um, with healthy, clean water, um, fighting climate change. And then certainly um, from this book encourages, and I'm interested in this with my family very much, is helping them cross the road safely when we can. Thank you so much. So just to start off, I'm so happy to hear that you and your family are interested together. Was that kind of what inspired you to write Salamander Sky, or how did you come to be so passionate about this? Well, I do remember um, being a, probably around 10 and, um, and seeing my first salamander and loving those tiny toes and just the shape and just was fascinated by it. Um, and I remember from that moment really loving this species um, 
And then moving here to where we live in Vermont, uh, we live along a dirt road and there's a pond in front of our house and it's a crossing site. And so I noticed the mortality. I noticed that they were crossing. Uh, I started to help them myself. And I came in one evening after doing that and I just wrote this poem. And um, I knew that I wanted to engage my students in helping them cross and also my daughters when they were old enough. So that was really the inspiration for the poem was this magic feeling that you get from spending a moment with this creature and helping it feel like you've done something good. You get to see this creature that's very rarely seen um, and then spreading that around so that folks could really engage in conservation and engage with a species um, that's really an honor to interact with. Yeah, especially given how elusive they seem to be. I know I've certainly never seen one myself. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. It's nighttime um, and only with that continuous rain, which we can talk about more. <laughs> so I have a few favorite parts of the book, but what really caught me my attention is just that it's a story about a mother and daughter. I love that you clearly identify the mother as the scientist. My mom is a scientist and that's important to me to see. And I'm wondering why you chose to really focus on April and her mom. Well, I really wanted to represent females um, in science. I feel like um, there's just so much gender stereotyping and there's just so many issues with that. And I really just wanted to present um, as, you know, that it's a mother and daughter and, and that they are excited um, to be out in the rain. They're excited to engage in conservation in their area. And I just wanted to bust through any um, stereotypes about that. Fabulous. And I love that April's thinking about it constantly during the day at school. I think it's fun to see a girl who's so interested in the science that's outside of school. And as a teacher, was that something you really focused on putting in the book? Absolutely, because I think that our students are so much more than they um, than the time that they spend in this school, and they're constantly learning, and that we need to think of them um, as these really dynamic, complex individuals that have lived experiences that are much beyond the school hours, and, and how can we help them engage in learning, um, no matter where it happens and when it happens. That's something I love to hear from a teacher. It's always important to me and I think a lot of folks to see how education is changing and how we can engage kids in things that they are actually passionate about. Absolutely. Uh, to move on, I'm wondering just uh, about some of the specifics of the book. And I noticed that it's kind of laid out like poetry. And I'm wondering if that started off with that first poem that you wrote and how that developed. It exactly did. It started out just in that free flow um, poem format and then um, working with Meg Sedano and working with Dee Dee Cummings and trying to really think about how to lay it out in a way that made sense in a picture book. You know, that was uh, a new experience for me. And certainly Meg really led the way because she knew what she wanted to tell visually. And, you know, and I sort of had uh, just just the poetic flow, I guess, of it that, made, that that I could advise on. So it was a really nice collaboration to figure out what worked best and um, what we imagined might work best for the reader. Yeah. Speaking of Meg Sedano, who's the wonderful illustrator, her illustrations appear as watercolors with kind of some digital enhancements and other medium. It's really a beautiful book. I'm wondering about the decision to target the audience. It's not necessarily for super young kids. And I like that it's a picture book that's for people who are, you know, maybe eight, nine, 10, 11. Um, I'm wondering why that was the age you decided to write to. 
Well, I feel like it certainly spans. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was it was tricky to identify the age for um, because certainly any any child you know that's between the ages of five and eight can sit in your lap and say, okay, what is an amphibian, right? <laughs> you know, have we seen these? We could engage in what, what does the life cycle look like? Those are all really important parts that are there for the younger reader. But then there's so much more in terms of complexity, um, it's particularly in the, the pages that have to do with the, the uh, threats to the spotted salamander and the way that Meg chose to represent um, the art on that page really tells a, a complex story for a, a more advanced student to think about. Um, so I think it, it, it really has a wide range of appeal for, for kids across a pretty big spectrum. And, and ideally, what it is is a, a gateway into project-based learning and a gateway into participating in conservation efforts in your own area. So, that, so that's, you know, sometimes a little bit for an older, older or intermediate elementary student. For sure. I've seen photos, I think, of you recently going into classrooms and talking about the spotted salamander. Can you share just a little bit about that experience and what it's like to return as an author with a kind of specific mission? Oh, it's been really, really fun. Um, and it's been a wide range of folks um, from like 400 kids in the gymnasium um, to a small group of, of pre-K students who are just like popcorn all over, you know. Um, and just I have a I have a little model of a salamander um, that I bring with me. Um, and and it, that really helps when we pass it around and we think about what it's like to carry this um, creature very gently across the road. And we talk about how to be safe when you're outside and all of these things. And so it's really just giving them a way um, to be active in conservation with this particular activity that they can do. Because so, so many things that don't, um, people assume that kids can't participate in, or this is for the adults. And, and this is really something that you can do as a family and everybody can get involved in. And so that's really how I treat it, is that everybody who, um, who I end up talking with hopefully becomes a salamander defender. Well, I know I'm definitely interested in becoming a salamander defender and learning <laughs> how to recognize that salamander sky. I really love the way you end the book with April kind of triumphantly looking at her mom and walking away. And she says that she's under this perfect salamander sky. And so I'm wondering if you could teach me how to recognize it. And then when I find a salamander, how do I safely and helpfully find it where it needs to go? That's wonderful. So um, I, I feel like I feel like April. Um, I, I am watching the weather um, in March and April very closely. And what I'm looking for is um, it's it's the first warmish rain. I mean, it's not warm, um, but it's definitely um, one of those days that's in the 40s, you know, and the rain um, is coming down just like in the book, not for an hour, not for two hours, but for a long time, right, for multiple hours. And because this creature is going to cross when everything is wet, that is when the safe time for that for the spotted salamander to cross. So um, I'm looking for that sky, that really that gray sky that people assume, oh, is sad and negative. And I'm thinking, no way, this is exciting. <laughs> this is perfect. And so this one will come out. I'm like, oh, not today, you know. So um, so I'm waiting for that. And then it also has to be the nighttime. So it's, it has to have rain continually, hopefully still be raining. Um, and then it's also nighttime. So it's, it's um, warm enough that they decide that they're going to come out of their tree root homes and the burrows from the subterranean. They're going to come out and they're going to start making their way back to those vernal pools and ponds. And um, they're often sluggish. They're a little cold. 
because they've been in all winter. And so what you do is, is you take your, your um, flashlight or your headlamp and just scanning. Well, of course, let me back up. You're wearing your rain stuff. Hopefully you have reflective gear on. If you're with a child, they need to have reflective gear on so they can stay really safe. They need some really clear directions to stay right in front of you and to not go into any oncoming cars, even if there's a salamander. So we, that's one thing I always talk to the, all the, the kids about. But with all that being said, and once you're out there, you're scanning the, the edges of the road and you're looking for when the spotted salamander is coming across the roadway toward whatever the, the pool or pond is. It's helpful to know where that is in the area because what you don't want to do is turn them around the wrong way and then make another problem for them. So you t the way that they're heading, once you see them, um, it's just such an exciting moment. You might see um, an eastern spotted newt. You know, you might see those ones crossing. Those ones are um, orange when they're out in the forest, and then they're turning green once they're in the, um, the ponds. So you might help one of those. You might help some wood frogs and spring peepers, who are also rare to see, loud to hear, but rare to see. Tiny flesh-colored frogs um, will also be crossing that early on. So when you see one of those species, um, you, I like to go bend over, squat down, and I get my hands wet, dip them in a, a um, pond or a pool, because you really don't want to have your dry skin with maybe cream on it interacting with their skin. So you get your hands nice and wet, and you pick them up super gently, and then I stay very low to the ground just in case they fall out, right? So I show this, the kids how to carry very lowly. So it's like a squat walk kind of thing on over. And then we wish them well on the other side in the direction that they were headed. I think that's really beautiful. I know when I was growing up, I think I'd been taught that it could be kind of bad to touch amphibians, especially if I had like oils on my hands. It, are you mindful to wash your hands before going out or is it okay just to kind of get them wet in a pond and cradle them? I mean, I yeah, I think um, you wouldn't want to use excessive like products mm -hmm. or anything on your hands. And I don't really do that anyway. Yeah. So that's not something I really think about. But um, but they do have, you know, they have um, a somewhat noxious mm. um, secretion um, to ward off predators on their skin. So it is smart to come in and wash your hands afterward. Right. Great. So they, they do have that. Yeah. But you're also wet out there that it usually doesn't matter because it, you're just soaked anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I imagine you have to be mindful of a lot of things when picking them up, but it must feel kind of magical to put them down on the other side. It really is. And the spotted salamander particularly will take up your entire hand. I mean, they're, they're very large. Um, you'll see if you look at some of the photos on my blog, it you know takes up my entire hand and the tail's wrapping around my wrist. It's just a marvel marvelously sized creature. It's just amazing. I love it. Yeah that visual just because often we think of things that are unseen or elusive as being tiny and that's why we don't run into them but these guys are just living in the earth for so long yes and when they do emerge do you know at what point in their life cycle that is are they i don't know are, are, they, are they a year old or they're, well they're adults and they can live um i've seen a range they can mm -hmm. live up to 20 years but i did wow. find one source that said 32 oh my gosh <laughs> So you think about how many times they're having to cross, right? Yeah. So they do that every March. Um, and they're juveniles. Um, I'm not exactly sure how long they're juveniles for before they are a full-fledged adult. Great. I'd have to double-check that one. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's always interesting to me. I love the illustration of the life cycle in the book. Yeah. And I feel like uh, Meg really extended the science knowledge mm -hmm. so much through those illustrations. She was able to show the range, the life cycle, able to show the threat. So she was really able to take the text and just extend it educationally. Definitely. Which was really, 
exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, when folks read the book and when children look at it, they'll notice that some of the life cycle mirrors the frog life cycle. You see it kind of look like a tadpole. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought that was so funny just because I think a lot of kids growing, grow up knowing about the frog life cycle. Yes. And then to think that a salamander might be so closely related that it has a similar one. Yep, and the juvenile is really neat. It's really neat to see. It's it's quite small and it's black, and they have the external gills Ooh, that look like feathers, and it's just it's, it's extraordinary to see that as well. Yeah, I imagine those are very delicate. Yes, very, yeah. very much. So then, in the same vein, and as a teacher, what's the best way to get a child involved in the environment and conservation? I think um, I think we can do best by them by giving them lots of unstructured time to play and to explore where they live as much as possible. I mean, we live in these screen heavy environments and as much as we can um, get kids outside and asking questions and trying to find the answers to their own questions um, and really letting them letting their curiosity lead the way and then following up as the as a parent or the caregiver. You know, if they're asking questions repeatedly about, you know, maybe a type of deer that they saw, like how can you help them, you know, learn that for themselves? How can you help them? What time was it when you saw the deer? What, what do you think was happening? You know, what you know, just just um, the encouragement, the support and the freedom to really engage with with the natural world. Absolutely. I think children often have such an innate curiosity in the world around them. And all too often there don't seem to be books that focus on the natural world. Do you have any books that really inspired you or you would recommend to parents who are interested in getting their kid more interested in the outside and science? Well, I really love, um, there's the nature generation and there's, um, I think this nature deficit disorder and um, the, these books about that, that can guide parents into helping their kids really um, take back more of the childhood that is wondrous and based in curiosity um, and based in hands-on exploration. You know, th those kind of books, I feel like um, anything that we can do to sort of counter some of the societal pressures to, to be overscheduled, to be, you know, have too many activities all the time and to be told what to do all the time versus having really letting kids lead the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it always brings me back to the kind of magic school bus mentality, the get messy, make mistakes, have fun. Yes, yes, Miss Frizzle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're just going to take a quick break from questions and hear a passage from Katie Farber. Um, do you want to give a little bit of context before we start? Sure. So this is when April has been waiting all day long. Um, to see if then if this was the salamander sky, if this was the right moment, and um, it, it was. She was she was waiting. She was trying to sleep, trying to read, couldn't do anything. So she finally gets the word that it is the right time, and so she pops up, and now she is heading out um, with her mom with their flashlights and all their rain gear. So here it goes. We walk down the dirt road, squish, squash, squish, rain pelting us sideways. I feel a chill deep in my bones, even though I am not cold. We scan the wet, shiny road for a four-legged, slow-moving friend, making its way steadily back to where it started, the pond and the wetlands where it was born. Trouble is, salamanders are slow, and cars come quick. Many are hit by people who drive and don't know this night is for the spotted salamanders. So we come out to look for them 
to carry them across the road to where they would safely go if we didn't drive here. I sweep my eyes back and forth, eyelashes dripping, my mom ahead, shiny and slick too. We are like two ghosts wandering together down this dark road, light from the flashlights scattering in the rain. Then I see a long black body, bright yellow spots, tiny toes and fingers. My heart leaps to my throat. Mom, I yell, I found one. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I love the authority that April speaks with. I think it's really inspiring for children to read about another child who kind of is an expert in something. Kids want to feel competent. They want to feel important that they can do things that matter. And they really can if they're given the chance. Absolutely. I think April's a great model for that. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So to kind of change tact a little bit. I know you have a lot of interests beyond just writing um, and teaching especially. And I'm just wondering, I know we've talked about how to get children interested in the environment and conservation, but on a more maybe even basic level, how do you get children interested in literacy and reading? Yes. So along with those encouraging asking questions, um, reading aloud to kids is just, it's such a magical Um, thing to be able to do with your child and you know it's really hard because we've all got to get dinner going we've all have a thousand things um, but it's just such a a important sacred time to develop your relationship with your child but and then also those literacy skills um, and that curiosity and that conversation that rich conversation that comes from a shared reading experience is just so powerful I found that with my sixth grade students regularly. Uh, we protected that time very much. Um, and then also with my own daughters and they're 11 and 13 and I still read aloud. Um, so it's it's just a really important way to, to just uh, model lifelong reading and curiosity. And, um, and so that's, I would say that first. And then I would also say um, letting them pick and lead the way as a teacher and as a parent, um, valuing everything that they're reading. If it's a graphic novel, if it's comics, if it, whatever it is, if they're reading, they're reading, right? So um, try not to be super judgmental about that and to just let them follow their, their excitement and their enthusiasm and really encouraging it. And then really getting what they need in terms of heading out to the library or the used bookstore or whatever, um, and just making sure they have something to read almost all the time. Beautiful. To what extent do you think parents and their interests influence what children are interested in? Because in the book, it seems very much so that April is taking the lead from her mom which I loved. <laughs> I think that, you know, our kids um, will will do what we do much more than they'll do what we say. And, um, and so if we model curiosity and we model vulnerability and open-heartedness um, and inclus- inclusiveness, you know, those are the kind of things that they can see us doing versus saying. Um, and so I feel like, you know, trying to read in front of your child is really important, trying to ask questions and being open to feedback, all of those things. Um, are, are so important. And so I feel like we just, we, we just try to be the best people we can um, and, show, and show our students through our actions versus our words. And certainly words are important too, but, um, but they really much more pay attention to what we do. Definitely. 
Um, so I know you've been writing on the environment and environmental safety and toxic-free children for a long time. I'm wondering if you can kind of take me on that journey from that writing to the development of Salamander Sky. Hmm. Um, I have always been um, environmental just activists in terms of like what even my undergraduate work and things was in that was in natural resources and trying to make um, healthy life choices. But it, everything became more acute once I had my, my daughters, because I just felt like here is this beautiful clean slate. And what, what are we doing when we have industrial chemicals already in umbilical cords? You know, what, what is that about, right? What is it about when we have products that are for sale on store shelves that, that have known carcinogens in them? How is, how is that true? How is that happening? Um, so I, I, Feel like I fell into advocacy around that um, one out of a desire to help all children everywhere just have access to a healthy life um, and so that, so I feel like that was really what started me on the pathway in that direction in terms of activism. I worked with Moms Rising, um, Safer Chemicals, Healthy Families, different organizations that had aligned values around those things um, and we really just teamed up and I did a lot of writing um, sort of investigative kind of writing and posting and informative for parents that were also struggling. Um, that was at a time when BPA, I don't know if you remember that, but bis, uh, bisphenol A is a you know, hormone, hormone mimicking chemical that was in um, sippy cups and baby bottles, and it was before it had been outlawed, and we were all fighting for that. Um, so so I, I found a, a group of activists and, and, and did some work there. But then, um, and along with that, I, I just had been writing some, some different fiction and trying different, different um, middle grade novels, and um, things like that and been playing and just then the you know sort of the interest in salamanders came along in terms of um, my house and where it is and this idea came forth I feel like I sort of dwell in ideas like when the ideas present themselves then I try to just follow them kind of like I encourage kids to follow their ideas right <laughs> I wonder where that comes from <laughs> So um, I just feel like these things are sort of combined, right? It's just this is how do we live as lightly as we can? How do we protect um, the most vulnerable in our society from harm, right? And, and that's really sort of where we'd be vulnerable. Those can be children or those can be different animal species. Thank you so much for sharing that <laughs> whirlwind. I love the commitment to the idea and just kind of running with it. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a genre list. It's, a, it's an interesting spot to be as a writer because people want to sort of sometimes pigeonhole you in a particular genre. And I sort of dwell in the ideas um, and try to follow them versus sticking to a particular genre. Yeah, when I was first reading about you and kind of exploring your website and everything, I was surprised to see just all the genres you've written across because <laughs> you have books on teachers and teaching and teacher retention, I think, mm -hmm. and also a middle grade novel mm -hmm. and now picture book <laughs> I think it's good to check it all off <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely I mean it's just it's the ideas you know and I feel like it we can put limitations on ourselves you know about about having to stay in a certain lane and I just hope to just try to follow the good ideas as they come <laughs> was it at all out of your comfort zone to go somewhere that would require such intense visuals and how did you get connected with Meg Sedano? Well, it was interesting because I sent The Order of the Trees, which is a middle grade novel, um, and I sent Salamander Sky, both manuscripts, to Green Writers Press. Um, and The Order of the Trees um, was picked up and, and published pretty quickly. And then Salamander Sky, we were just we were kind of just waiting for the right, the right person to come along, 
for that. And it took some time. You know, we were thinking about um, some that were a little bit maybe too cartoony or too abstract. And I think both Dee Dee Cummings and I had the vision of um, wanting this to be really a tool for conservation and for education. And so we were waiting for the right illustrator to come along. And, and Dee Dee knew when she saw her, uh, when, she, when her work came in, that she would be a great match. And she absolutely was. So that was uh, probably a good two years or so that we waited. Wow. So when you're developing the book and when Meg is producing illustrations, as the author, as the writer... How much input do you have? Is it like truly collaborative or is it you're presented with it and then you got to go? Yeah, um, I feel like the way um, we were sort of breaking up the pages, you know, gave a frame for how what what the art was. But really, um, I took a much more hands off approach. Um, because I had seen Meg's work and I, I just fully trusted where she was going to go with that. And I knew that mm-hmm. she and Dee Dee had that visual lens that I don't have as much. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, you know, I, I fully trusted, um, that, and, and was super happy with, with what happened. Um, but it was, you know, about surrounding sort of like, I think, I think Meg's process was what, what text, what, how can we break up the text and then what visual story can I tell? And, um, so we ran through some of those ideas before she did start the, um, you know, the pencil drawings and things. Yeah. Great. It's always so interesting to me to see how different genres and books develop. And I don't personally know anything about picture books. Um, but the illustrations are so essential, especially for a book that is making conservation efforts. And I think the story is so well woven into the sciency conservation effort that I think it's a real testament to you and Meg and the collaboration you did. No, thank you. And she's so very accurate too. You know, she's not going to have one um, one less toe. You know, she's she's going to make sure that this represents the spotted salamander and the science, which I think is great. Absolutely. And I hope this conversation and the book itself inspires a lot more salamander defenders. Yes, me too. <laughs> Do you have anything else you want to share with us? Any? events that are going to be coming up anything well i think by the time the podcast comes out um i do have an event tomorrow at the phoenix Mm -hmm. phoenix bookstore in rutland but i'll miss that one um yeah but let's see and beyond that i i do not think i have any more scheduled but they always seem to be coming in different different Mm -hmm. opportunities and so i'll keep that up i did um start there's this really neat collaboration called kids need mentors and um and it's a um Basically, an attempt to not even attempt an effort uh, to connect authors with classrooms across the country. And so the authors will send some books to a class and then write letters or Skype or um, Flipgrid, things like that. And so I was just um, writing to the librarian down in South Carolina um, that I'm going to be sending books to. And um, I'm going to try to write some hand, handwritten notes to her classes. Oh, that's so wonderful. Is that something that we can look up online, find a website for? I think yes. a lot of people would be interested in that. Yes, absolutely. Um, it was Anne Braden is an author. Um, she she has a, a book that's coming out soon. And um, she and a couple other authors coordinated it. I can give you the give you the link. But it's a really neat opportunity to just connect up kids with authors and, and just start that relationship and that dialogue. Absolutely. We've talked so much about how kids need positive reinforcement and to have their passions engaged and this seems like a really wonderful kind of alternative way for teachers to get involved with that 
Exactly. They can um, they can even sign up on the website um, to be matched with an author. They they might be um, taking a waiting list for now for this particular round, but I'm certain that more will open up in the future. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. You're welcome. So if you don't have anything else, we're going to head off. Okay. All right. All well, right. thank you so much. So we... Take a Leaf are incredibly grateful to our guest, Katie Farber. She can be found at katiefarber.com and on Twitter at non underscore toxic underscore kids and on Instagram at Katie Farber. Salamander Sky is out now through Midpoint Distribution and is available for sale on IndieBound or through your local independent bookstore. Take a Leaf is a project of Green Writers Press, giving voice to writers and artists who will make the world a better place. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Heather McCabe. Music was used courtesy of the Free Music Archive and Sound Bible. You can visit us online at takealeaf.org or on Twitter at Leaf Podcast. You can contact Green Writers Press on Twitter at Green Writers Pub. Wishing you the best from Gambier, Ohio and Brattleboro, Vermont. This has been Take a Leaf.